Our scripture reading today is from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had ever been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desire, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the word of God. Thanks, Steve. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Mother's Day. I also just want to say just a special good morning to anyone who Mother's Day is particularly difficult for. I just think of, you know, maybe single mothers, people who have lost mothers, uh, people who want to be mothers, but it's difficult. Uh, We're thinking about you. We love you. God has not forgotten about you. He loves you as well. So as Steve just read, we are in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. We'll get to that in a second. Um, Right out of the gate, I don't think it's a hot take for me to say that the single greatest pursuit of our age is pleasure. There's not much that we are more controlled by than pleasure. We long for it. We think about how we're going to get it. We make money so that we can acquire more of it. And as a culture of convenience, we tend to believe that we can have as much pleasure as we want, whenever we want it, and wherever we want it. And the thing is, the moment we attain whatever pleasure it is that we're pursuing, we immediately begin to plan for what the next one will be. And no matter how much pleasure we attain, we always want more. Tell me if this sounds familiar. I know it's true of me, but we wake up in the morning and we immediately begin to contemplate what I'm going to do that day that is enjoyable. 
Okay, like for me, I wake up and instantly I'm thinking, what am I gonna do today that I love to do? What am I gonna eat? What am I gonna drink? What am I gonna do to make this day as pleasurable as possible? And I know many spend hours inwardly just wrestling about a new thing that they're going to buy, a new piece of clothing that they want, not necessarily because someone robbed all of your pants, but because you want them so it makes you feel good. We sit stuck in traffic and we hear ads, commercials, see billboards, all feeding our fantasies and dreams about a vacation on the beach, a better body, a new, a new watch, a new phone, countless things screaming at us that the world revolves around your pleasure. Heck, even worship services like this very sacred hour that we and so many around the world are gathering in are not exempt to pleasure-seeking. As people go where worship is most enjoyable and pleasurable to them, as if to say, the purpose of the Sunday gathering is to fulfill your pleasure void. Well, the last few weeks in the book of Ecclesiastes have really shown us that if we are not set apart in our materialistic pursuits, then it's going to be challenging for us as Christians to present Jesus to the rest of the world. And so it is with pleasure-seeking. Because if pleasure-seeking becomes primary, we start to become a lot like Lot. And if you don't know anything about Lot, He was so taken over by the pleasures of the city of Sodom that he had very little impact on his culture as it pertained to proclaiming God. Instead, our desires, Christians, our desires should be more like Moses who chose to forego the pleasures of Egypt and God used Moses to deliver his people. And so this morning, we need to understand how the scriptures define this idea of the pursuit of pleasure and what that means for us on a daily, practical level. And surprise, surprise, Ecclesiastes 2 is going to help us a lot with that. We'll get to that text in a second. But I think for some, maybe in here, uh, if you grew up in more of a legalistic or religious or maybe conservative household, or, or maybe you don't know anything about Christianity and you just think that God is like a buzzkill or a killjoy in the sky, waving his fist and saying, no fun allowed, don't do that, don't do anything. If you, if you come from any of those places, I think God's word might be a bit surprising to you. Because what God is going to declare Are you ready for this? Is that earthly pleasures are good. The Bible is going to repeatedly invite us to enjoy the things of this earth. And I know right now, if you come from a more conservative background, you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I was taught that sex is evil and alcohol is poison and secular music will rot your brain. Well, Let me just tell you that um, God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful, to multiply. There's an entire book about love and sexual desire. God even commands us to eat and drink your fill, you lovers. Please don't make me explain that. My mom's in here. (laughs) Ecclesiastes 9 says, Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. I just noticed a few people taking notes for the first time ever. (laughs) 
the Bible is going to repeatedly invite us to enjoy the things of this earth. Everything in God's creation is good. If you look at the creation story, six times in the first chapter of the Bible, God declares that what he has created is good, and the sixth time he says, he looks at all of it and he says, it's very good. 1 Timothy 4 says, for everything created by God is good. And nothing, nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So the scriptures never treat physical pleasures as intrinsically bad in themselves. I think the church, Christians, religious people have done this really weird thing over the years where we would say physical pleasures bad, avoid them at all costs, only ever pursue spiritual pleasures. And that's simply not how God designed things to be. There's a really great book called The Dictionary of Biblical Imagery by a guy named Lee Riken, and he has a section in there where he's talking about pleasures, and he gives us five categories of God-given pleasure. Any pleasure you can think of should fall under one of these five categories. The first one being nature, and nature is celebrated biblically in the book of Psalms five times, five Psalms dedicated to celebrating the earth, to creation, the grass, stars, sun, mountains, and for us, this one's really easy where we live on the North Shore. Like, we can look around and see the beauty of creation and see great activities available to us in nature. The second one, human artistry, a lot, a lot falls under this one. Um, And we see this in the scriptures when we read about things like the beauty of the temple or castles or works of art or sculptures. It's like us finding pleasure in beautiful buildings and paintings and clothing and jewelry. Likewise, music. The Bible talks about the sound of instruments being an enjoyable experience. And for us, it's listening to our favorite favorite bands, it's going to concerts, it's that perfect song on the perfect summer night. It's a pleasurable experience. You could also throw in writing, literature, books, movies. These are all pleasurable human artistry creations. The third thing he mentions is family. And family is commended by God as a great source of pleasure. And I'm experiencing this firsthand right now with my four-month-old, but those who have the privilege of parenting children are declared to be blessed by God. Psalm 128 says, children are a source of pleasure. The fourth category is community having a social life, having friends, people to know and be known by, to share experiences, conversations, meals, laughter. Those are viewed as vehicles of pleasure from God. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but in the Old Testament, a tenth of your income was to be set aside to have feasts and celebration with friends and community. It's a great commandment. And so sitting down for the pleasure of a great meal with great drink is not just a gift from God, but a commandment for your joy. Jesus himself contributes to this when he turns water into wine, keeps the party going. And fifth, corporate worship. Biblically, this is a foundational source of pleasure 
Psalm 122 says, I rejoice with those who go into the house of the Lord. And so the point is, pleasure is everywhere. God-given pleasure everywhere around us. You don't have to look hard to find it. It's everywhere, and he enjoys seeing us receive that pleasure. There's so much so that the person in this world who is not very rich by material standards can still be lavished with pleasure. And so regardless what you may think about God, he is not anti-pleasure. He is not waving his fist in the sky like a policeman saying, don't do that. No, his command for us is that we enjoy life. We'll see this in a few weeks, but Ecclesiastes 3, verse 12 and 13 says, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. That's an incredible commandment. And here's the big idea. His pleasures need no pursuit. You don't have to pursue them. All you have to do is receive them. It's a call, a commandment, in fact, to receive them. If you're not receiving them, you're actually missing out on the great joy he has set before you. And so we receive his pleasures. But the kicker to all of this is that to pursue pleasures as an end in itself is meaningless. Like chasing after the wind. That's what the entirety of the experiment of the book of Ecclesiastes will tell us again and again. And if we're honest with ourselves this morning, our lives have taught us that as well. That no matter how much we get, we just want more. That no matter what we think is finally going to make us happy and fill that void in ourselves, when we get it, yeah, it might help for a little bit, but eventually we want more. Our text today, Solomon's experiment, will give us a broader scope of how pursuing pleasure as an end will ultimately leave you unsatisfied. And so I think a lot of us, at one time or another, have had the thought that if I just had a little bit more money or a little bit bigger of a house, or a little bit more sex, or a little bit more recognition that I would finally be satisfied. The problem with that thought process is the book of Ecclesiastes, particularly chapter two. Our boy Solomon here is gonna tell us that he is going to test pleasure to the max. Like this guy has the resources to test this to a, to a degree that we can never imagine. He says that he's going to quote, enjoy himself. He says, okay, we're looking for ultimate satisfaction. So we're going to put every pleasure imaginable to the test to see if there's anything truly satisfying under the sun. Spoiler alert, there's not. 
Solomon tells us that he's going to test every single pleasure. And as we go through this list, we see him pursuing pleasure through mental means like we saw last week where he seeked out wisdom. And now he's going down the physical pleasure route. And you can put the next slide up there, Rowan. He begins with laughter in verse 2. He moves on to wine and just the most epic epic parties you could ever imagine. You can read about them in the book of 1 Kings, but he threw days, week-long parties that would make the Met Gala look like your kid's backyard birthday party. Like, he partied hard. In verse 4, he pursues major building projects, construction, including his house, which is immaculate. To give you an idea of what his house is like, the great temple in Jerusalem was one of the great wonders of the ancient world. And it's talked about as being one of the most beautiful buildings in history. And that temple took seven years to build. And it's said that it was luxurious, covered with precious gold, stones, gems, and it took seven years. Solomon's house, in comparison, took 13 years to build. And not only does he build himself a house, but he builds houses for all of his wives. And I did say wives. We'll get to that. But that's not all. He doesn't just build his house with some nice greenery, a cute little yard to plant a garden. No, he plants entire forests. As per usual, he goes far beyond what we could comprehend in regards to pursuing pleasure. In fact, if you went to Jerusalem today, you can go to southwest Jerusalem and you'll find a place that has all of these craters in the earth and they're called the Pools of Solomon. Solomon would fill those up with water so that he could water his forests. So in his pleasure experiment, he builds, he gets land, properties, stuff, legacy, and he says it's all meaningless. He says, you think a house with a bigger yard is going to satisfy you? Well, I built a palace, and not with some puny garden with a couple marigolds, but I planted a national forest, and even that wasn't fulfilling. And so we've seen him now leave the party scene. He's left the building scene and now he's going to test the life of wealth and ease, which I think might be the most popular pleasure pursuit of our day. In verse 7, we read that he hires slaves and servants so that he would never have to do anything he doesn't want to do ever again. He acquires great wealth and treasures. He accumulates riches to a level that we can't even imagine, and even those don't satisfy him. A few chapters later, in chapter 5, he says this about money. He says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also meaningless. And so then he moves on from wealth and ease, and he says, okay, how about sex? Another popular desire in our culture. 
I think many have had or are living in the thought that if you just had more sex, had different partners, or tried different things, that you would be satisfied. Well, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines or mistresses. He experienced more sex in more ways with more people than you could ever dream of. And what did he say about it? Meaningless. It left me empty. And so he's tested himself with every pleasure imaginable under the sun. And what did he learn? Let's look at verse 9 together. He says, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my, my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity or meaningless, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." And so it makes me think if there's nothing to be gained under the sun, then perhaps our greatest satisfaction is beyond the sun. Solomon says, what, what did I get out of this whole experiment? Momentary, fleeting, here for a second and then gone pleasure. And it left me right where I was when I started this whole thing, unsatisfied and wanting something more. So it has been for every man and woman in the history of the earth who pursued pleasure as an end in itself. I'm right here with you, but I think we're far too easily fooled by culture you know, by social media and commercials and public figures, public opinion, sadly even our friends and family who would tell us that pursuing pleasures as an end will finally satisfy you, that acquiring more pleasure will finally be the thing to make you ultimately happy forever. Well, like the successful lawyer I referenced a few weeks back, that guy had everything so many of us dream of, and he said when he went home at night, he was empty. And so what's the point here? Because I realize I've been walking this tightrope where I came out the gate saying, God created all these pleasures, and they're good, and we should enjoy them, and we absolutely should. But the key is, that they are to be received as secondary benefits to the one true satisfying pleasure that is beyond the sun, and that is the gift of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for you and the grace he has on the table for you right now. Like that, and that alone, is what's going to fill that empty void in your heart once and for all, not just today, but for eternity. Isn't that what we're all after? 
Earthly pleasures were never designed to fill that void, but rather to help point us toward the one who can. One of my favorite books uh, by, is by C.S. Lewis. We actually talked about it at a youth group on Wednesday. It's called The Screwtape Letters. And, and it's a book from the devil's perspective. Really interesting stuff. It's basically the devil and his minions planning how they're going to pull people away from God. And in this one section we're going to reference, uh, the screw tape, the devil, is speaking to his understudy, and they're talking about this topic of pleasure. Here's what he says. He says, Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground, the enemy being God. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one all we can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which it is least natural, least redolent of its maker, and least pleasurable, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing formula. Pleasure is the formula. And then a little later on, a few chapters later, Screwtape says this of God. He says, he has filled his world full of pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long without his minding in the least. Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, partying, working. Everything has to be twisted before it's of any use to us. And so when and how does a pleasure become twisted? Well, firstly, when we forget that all pleasures are a gift from God and we think that they're things we can have apart from him. Secondly, pleasures become twisted when it's no longer something we receive but something we pursue as an end. Like, there are incredible pleasures at every turn. We've mentioned a lot today, and, and they're not bad things like, like family, love, community, health, church. Like Those aren't bad things at all. The problem is when you pursue those things as most important, you miss the one true pleasure, Jesus Christ. We don't need to pursue pleasures. We just have to receive them. Thirdly, when we consider it a right or an entitlement, pleasures become easily distorted. And they're no longer used in the way that they're designed to be. And often, they'll become overindulged. And when I say overindulged, I don't just mean what I think our minds might be prone to think of, like, like drugs and alcohol, though of course, those can easily be overindulged. But even good things can be overindulged, like, like family, like health, like safety, security, love, even church have the ability to be overindulged and elevated above God thus leaving us a craving for wanting more of that thing rather than God himself. We begin to worship creation instead of the creator. 
This is what the enemy wants, and it happens so easily. We often don't even realize it. It happens slowly. We slowly elevate good pleasures, and by elevating those, we subtly push other things down. Our our marriages, our children, and of course God, lower and lower. And I think the real tragedy for us is when we full sprint pursue pleasures, oftentimes we miss the beautiful ones that are right in front of our face that we just need to pick off the vine. Pleasure-seeking is ultimately an avoidance of struggle, and the Bible tells us that struggle is actually needed for spiritual growth. You can read Romans 5. Because when you pursue pleasure, that lifestyle will leave you wanting more and more, and it will numb you to your greatest need, which isn't physical, but spiritual. And look, like, I like stuff as much as anybody. The answer to all of this, the greatest pleasure of all is God himself. In Psalm 16, we read, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God offers how much joy? The fullness of it. God offers pleasure for how long? Forevermore. Does anything under the sun offer that? God wants us to immerse ourselves in his pleasure, yes, by enjoying his good creation, but ultimately by immersing ourselves in him. There's a a really famous quote, some of you may know it, from The Weight of Glory by uh, John Piper. I'll start to bring things home with this. He says, indeed, We consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the the Gospels. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Romans 1 would tell us that when sin entered the world through Adam and Eve in the garden, we exchanged pursuing the Creator God for His creation. And when that took place, we began to settle for temporary, fleeting pleasures rather than eternal satisfaction. And so here's what I don't want for us, because I I love you. I don't want us to spend hours and days and months and years 
putting effort and time and resources and anxiousness into chasing pleasures when in reality, the greatest pleasure is right in front of us and you just have to receive it. And so can we set ourselves apart from the world when it comes to pleasure-seeking? That we might have an answer for a pleasure-pursuing world that is seeking but never finding, we have the answer, and it's in one thing, Christ alone. Let's stand together and respond. Well, Father, we just, we need you. We need your help. The things of this earth are appealing to us, and, and we confess that oftentimes we pursue them more than we pursue you. And so this morning, we just ask that you would reveal yourself to us in a powerful way so that we might know and be reminded that you're better that you're the thing that can truly satisfy us once and for all. We might be able to find temporary satisfaction for a day, for a week, for a month, for a few years, but ultimately only you can satisfy us for an eternity. Would you just penetrate our hearts with that reality? And I just pray for my brothers and sisters in here that you would just help us do the the beautiful work of self-examination and just see areas that we are pursuing things above you. Maybe this morning we just confess to a friend, a spouse, someone around us, and just ask for, ask for help, ask for prayer that we might choose you. Would you just go before us, empower us? We love you, we need you, we thank you for the gift of Jesus dying on the cross for us. May that be what truly satisfies us and fuels our everyday life. We love you, we need you. We pray these things in your beautiful name. Amen.